Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis and this week I shall be talking to Simon Elliott, the Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities, as normal every week from now on, to talk about what's been happening in the markets this week. And it's been, in its own way, also quite a remarkable week, uh, Simon. I think it's fair to say, if I could just sort of sketch a little bit of background here, we've had, in terms of the virus itself, number of cases has now passed 1.6 million globally. There've been 100,000 deaths. The Prime Minister of the UK has, has gone into intensive care, though fortunately has now come out of that, I believe. And we've seen a whole succession of dire economic forecasts coming out of the dismal science of econom- economists. Uh, and yet we've had in the stock market, it's been quite a different story. According to the Wall Street Journal, this has been the global stock markets had their best week since 1974. So what's going on here? No, you're absolutely right. It's been a, a good week for investors, a good week for the market. So just to put some numbers around that, the FTSE All Share, uh, which is obviously the leading UK companies, is up 9%. And actually, the Investment Trust uh, Company Index is up uh, nearer to 12%. So it has been uh, you know, a very strong week for the markets and for the investment trust sector. I think what you have to remember is obviously markets look forward uh, and they're trying to look uh, for hopefully the light at the end of this a particularly nasty tunnel. And I think that have taken some comfort for the news uh, coming out of China that they appear to be uh, attempting to go back to a more normal uh, situation there. So talk of factories coming back online, people going back to work. Um, I think also the news that there's been a significant amount of uh, state intervention, either in reality or promised. I think the market's taking some, some comfort for that. So um, I think animal spirits have, have undoubtedly risen in the last week. So I think, as we mentioned last week, the, the key factor is the initial market reaction was there were elements of panic about it, uh, compounded by the fact that there were liquidity issues in, in, in the way that some uh, securities were traded and so on. Everybody tried to sell at the same time. And that kind of exaggerated the downdraft, if you like. Uh, and now we've had a bit more clarity about where the virus might go and when it might peak, and when we might get economic activity resuming again. And therefore, they've, they've been able to take a more, perhaps, measured response to the threat that the virus poses. But if you say, as you say, the uh, investment trusts generally have done better than the market as a whole, that implies that the discounts, which had widened quite sharply initially, uh, have come back in further again. Is, is, is that right? And that's absolutely correct, yeah. So at the start of the year, uh, the sector average di- discount for investment trust companies was around 1% which was historically a very, very narrow level indeed. That had widened out a little bit through January, February, but in March, it absolutely plummeted out to 22%. That's that's the average discount across the whole sector. And just to put that in context, that's a level that was last seen in the uh, global financial crisis of 2008. Since then, we've seen pretty much uh, a a large recovery. So uh, at the end of this week, uh, it actually got to back to 6%. So that volatility that's come through in terms of discounts has been incredibly dramatic. Right. So that's created both sort of opportunities and uh, and also comfort for people who haven't done anything in the meantime. I mean, I guess it's fair to say that investors who, who did panic and started selling things quite dramatically uh, in the middle of March might be starting to regret that now, while those who did absolutely nothing are uh, suddenly looking at something where the picture doesn't seem at all so bleak. Their portfolios will be down, but they won't be down by... Uh, anything like as much as they were at the worst moment last month. Yeah, I mean, look, the the UK market's down 22% year to date, which is obviously a significant downdraft. But the actual investment company sector is down about 13%. So that recovery 
uh, in discounts across the sector has really helped it outperform the wider UK market so far this year. And in terms of how that, again, if I can ask you about the sort of split between what's been happening to the sort of half of the market that's conventional equity uh, investment trusts and the other half, which are so-called alternative assets, uh, things like property and buildings and so on, what's been the divergence between the, sec- the discounts in these two different types of trusts? Yeah, and, and you make a good point. So we discounts overall have narrowed, uh, as we've mentioned, but there is still a big difference between those more specialist asset classes that have uh, delayed valuation points. So property and private equity being uh, foremost amongst them. We're still working on valuations at the end of last year, and clearly the world was a very different place at the end of last year. And as and when they announce their uh, revaluations at the end of March, which we'd expect over the next month or two, we'd expect to see significant falls in their in their portfolio valuations. Conversely, on the uh, more conventional equity side, so uh, investment trust companies that invest effectively in stocks and shares, then the ratings of those funds now have come back to certainly the average levels over the, the previous 12 months. In, in a number of cases, they're actually trading at tighter discounts uh, than the average discounts over the last 12 months. In other words, they're trading well, but um, it looks as if investors uh, are, are interested in those kind of mandates. And particularly, we believe, for the, uh, the dividend certainty that they provide at the moment. Yes, well, I think we'll, we'll come on to that. But just before we do that, I think it's worth making the point that uh, on the whole, I think it's fair to say, what well, is it fair to say that the things that did worse in the downdraft have also done relatively gone back up more quickly. I mean, is that a fair generalization? It tends to be what happens when you get these very sudden market falls and recoveries. The things that did worse do best on the way back up again. But is that, has that been broadly true this time? Yeah, I think I think there's been a degree of, uh, clearly, when, when we hit middle of March and there was that extreme market sell-off, um, everything became correlated. Everything plummeted at that stage. And I think the weeks since then, I think there's been a process of the market looking through and trying to work out the correct valuations of various uh, investment trust companies and trying to work out uh, what they should be trading on. So there have been some inefficient pricing, uh, and we've seen some quite exaggerated share price moves. But it feels to me as if we're moving forward. We've become, the market has become more orderly now. The valuations, people have got a good handle on them and where these companies sit. So. You know, going back to the property companies, they're still trading out on wide discounts, but probably rightly so, because the values of those those funds have clearly fallen in the uh, in the intervening months since their last valuation points. But if you look at equity income type mandates, then um, I think there's a lot to lot to be said for those type of mandates at the moment. And you know, the market sees that, and that's why they've been repriced accordingly. So some of them have actually, as you say, they're they've, they're trading on a on a narrower discount or or indeed premium than they were before. Okay, so that's interesting. What about the companies themselves? I mean, how have you found, obviously, it's your job to track what these companies, investment trusts are saying. Uh, Have you found they've been uh, very open and transparent about what they're telling you? Are they telling you enough information to allow investors to take a handle on what they're doing? And what are they doing about, um, you know, about AGMs and uh, and such like? I mean, they're being cancelled, suspended. What's, What's going on there? AGMs are particularly difficult at the moment because uh, obviously with the government's uh, guidance and rules that to have more than two people in any one place at any one time is very, very difficult. So what we're tending to find is that AGMs or EGMs, extraordinary general meetings, uh, which are less frequent, but they are being either postponed or they're being held, but on the basis that shareholders are encouraged not to attend. So it's very much the case that they need two shareholders to, to make these meetings quarrel there's a good reason why they might still have to hold these meetings in order to get uh, approval for 
maybe buyback programs or issuance programs or approval of dividends. So there's a good legal reason why these things have to be held. But, but the basic standpoint is, please don't attend these AGMs or EGMs at the moment uh, for, for very good reason. Um, and I suspect most shareholders will absolutely understand that and, and act accordingly. And in terms of uh, the information flow from, from the investment trusts themselves, I mean, one would hope that uh, because the investment trusts are accountable to shareholders, boards would be quite active in actually making sure that the market is well informed about how they're positioned and how their portfolios are being affected by uh, what is happening at the moment. But is that actually happening? Yeah, no, I think it is. I think, again, when, uh, you know, go back to, to three or four weeks ago, when, when sort of the reality of what we were dealing with hit, I think uh, there, was a, there was a moment or two where I think people were, went a little bit quiet. And I suspect there's kind of practical logistical reasons why that was the case. Clearly, a lot of people are now working from home, if not the vast majority. So there was a little bit of a recalibration processing going on at that stage. But in the last two or three weeks, I think we'll see more and more uh, information uh, flowing out from the investment companies, providing greater and greater detail. Clearly, it is difficult. Uh, you know, we're working in a, a new environment right now. Uh, the initial statements were very much along the basis of, you know, we, we don't know exactly how big the impact from COVID-19 is, but clearly it will be significant. That was kind of very much the flavor two or three weeks ago. Now, actually, some of the statements coming out are giving uh, a huge amount of uh, detail and insight into the challenges that um, the management teams are facing. So a good example of that would be Caledonia Investments that last week published an update on its portfolio. Uh, and as I'm sure some of the listeners know, Caledonia Investments is, is effectively a kind of family office type uh, investment company. It has a, a large proportion in uh, unquoted uh, investments. And last week's announcement really gave quite a lot of detail of how they've gone through their portfolio um, trying to ascertain the appropriate valuation for those type of assets. And uh, again, it gives a good insight into kind of the consideration that these management teams are making at the moment. It's not entirely straightforward. We are, we are living in a different world, but that information flow in general is, is, is good. Okay, something else that happened this week, uh, and it's probably quite easy, you might have missed it if you were not uh, following the market movements on a day-by-day basis, is, is that the, uh, the board of one particular investor trust has decided to fire their manager in the middle of uh, this uh, market downturn. I'm talking about Perpetual Income and Growth, which is managed by Mark Barnett at uh, Invesco Perpetual, who used to be, of course, Neil Woodford's uh, colleague, and they had very similar approaches to the market. Why do you think they've, the Board of Perpetual Income and Growth has chosen this moment of all to, um, to announce that they are going to be uh, reviewing and dispensing with his, uh, his services as a manager? Yeah, no, it's, it's a fair question. I mean, given we are in uh, the middle of a, of a crisis, or certainly the, despite the market recovery, it's still very difficult market conditions. But I think in the case of perpetual income and growth, it had been clear for some time that the board were very concerned about the performance under Mark Barnett. Um, and he's managed this particular investment trust since 1999, which is a long period of time. And for 16 years, literally 16 years, he had an exemplary performance record between 2000 and 2015 He'd outperformed in 14 of the 16 calendar years, which uh, for any investment manager would be a, a tremendous uh, result. However, since the start of 2016, the fund has struggled, it has underperformed, um, and the board had, uh, on a number of previous occasions, had come out and expressed their concern, um, including back in December when its stablemate Edinburgh Investment Trust decided to move to Majady Investments. At that stage, the Board of Perpetual Income and Growth uh, again said that they were minded to see how Mark would perform, particularly given the Boris bounce or the Brexit bounce that people were talking about at that stage. 
which did help performance for a short period of time, but again, subsequently it's really struggled. So the reasons for making the change, I think, are, are quite easy to understand. Why now? Why not let this kind of crisis uh, go away before making the change of manager? Well, I think I think the board were minded to, to get a, to get on with it, to be honest. And it takes a period of time to go through the process uh, of finding a new manager. And the difference between Perpetual Income and Grove to Edinburgh Investment Trust is that they've tried to do this in a very public way. So they've come out and stated that they've served notice on Invesco, and they're now inviting other investment management groups to effectively pitch to take over the mandate. So there'll be a whole process. It will take two or three months. I mean, it's very difficult to know exactly uh, because given the circumstances that everyone is operating in at the moment, but these things do take time and, you know, get the ball rolling now because um, by the time we get to June, July, August, whenever the, whenever the, uh, the new manager is announced, um, then market conditions could, could uh, have changed significantly. You mentioned Edinburgh Investment Trust, and uh, by implication, I, I guess I picked up a slight inference there that the way they went about it was slightly different. They did talk to various people, they say, but then they announced kind of out of more or less a rather surprising choice, I think, in terms of recent performance anyway of, of Majedi to manage the, invest, the investment trust. It's always a very difficult thing, isn't it, for investment trust boards to get this right? It's one thing to make a decision to change the manager after a long period of, of bad performance. It's perfectly understandable. But as you say, uh, getting it right, whether you go for somebody who's got uh, what happens to have a good track record at the moment, or whether you go for somebody who you think has got reasons to be performing uh, better in the future, is a is a is a tricky balance to strike. It's it's very difficult. It's very difficult, and there are a number of instances where boards have, have called it absolutely spot on, and equally where, uh, as you say, they've they've chased the the person who's just happened to performed well in the previous couple of years and they've called the top of their performance record so it is a it is a very difficult shout i think in the case of perpetual income and growth the, the board this particular board gave mark as much time as possible to turn that performance around i think in recognition of his very strong long-term performance record that didn't come through but i i think it'd be wrong to criticize the board for you know effectively giving him that extra time i mean the uk equity income space is is, is highly competitive i think i think there's some very talented managers out there and I think investment trust mandates invariably attract a huge amount of interest from, from the various different investment management firms. I mean, this is a sizable mandate, many, many hundreds of millions of pounds. Um, and I think you'll find a lot of top quality uh, managers really uh, interested in, in taking this mandate over. It's a great shop window for any investment manager. Also, to be fair, you, you couldn't rule out any corporate activity at this stage as well. So the idea that uh, another existing investment trust company looks to do a deal with uh, perpetual income and growth. I think that's slightly less likely, though, to be honest, because of the size of, of, of Piggott, it is sufficiently large enough to effectively command its own manager and, and uh, see how that goes forward. So uh, without talking specifics here, which is beyond our remit here um, and beyond indeed the regulatory requirements here, but uh, in general terms, what do you think shareholders should do when they, have, when they see a change of manager coming along? It's been well flagged now by the, uh, by the board. What should they do? Should they sit back and just wait? Or is there any case for... Uh, making their own decision and saying, I want to go somewhere else. And if you, I've got somewhere else to go, so I might as well go now. What, what, how should they think about that in general terms? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And obviously without providing any uh, direct investment advice or anything of that nature. I mean, what I think we can observe is that where investment trust companies have uh, decided to change managers, that often, but not always, uh, we've seen a re-rating as a result of that. Uh, so that's happened uh, in a number, number of instances. Uh, so, for example, Edinburgh Investment Trust, although not uh, initially has uh, recently been, uh, the discount has moved into about a 5% discount, 
having been on a double-digit discount going back at the time of the appointment. Uh, equally, uh, Bailey Gifford have been appointed to a number of investment trusts in recent years, and they've been uh, re-rated at that stage as well. So, you know, it's very difficult to call this, um, but history would suggest that there is a chance, not a definite guarantee, there is a chance that a new manager brings uh, a re-rating, particularly where investors or shareholders can see that they're, they're, there's a new story there, there's a new reason to hold the company or to invest in the company, uh, and you can see significant pickup in demand for uh, shares at that stage. Okay, so well, let's talk about the equity income. We can track that uh, particular case as it goes forward, but let's talk about equity income in general. I mean, one of the features of the market obviously has been the fact that a number of companies have either been forced or required by the government or decided to either cut or suspend their dividends. And it's quite a significant proportion of the overall market, I think, has made some announcement of that kind. But in terms of investment trusts, which are reliant on income from uh, equities in order to, to pay out in turn their own dividends to shareholders, what's been the experience there? What, what are we seeing so far in terms of their ability to continue paying those dividends and how they're affected themselves by these dividend restrictions? So we have seen a number of investment companies announce either uh, dividend cuts or dividend suspensions. But at the moment, they're all focused on quite specialist areas within the investment company's universe. So it's property companies, it's debt companies, or even leasing companies. And there's different dynamics going on in, in all those areas. Uh, I'm sure as you appreciate on the property side, uh, then clearly there's a lot of rent holidays going on, or, or uh, in the case of student property, effectively students being uh, allowed not to pay their, their final terms. Rent accommodation. So there's good reasons why those particular type of companies that look to rebrace their dividends or even suspend them for the short period of time. Uh, and on the debt side, again, there's been, in a number of cases, interruption to uh, payments or receipts coming through that enable those investment companies to make payments onto their shareholders. On the UK equity income side, with just one exception, which is a very uh, highly geared vehicle called British and American, um, there have been no dividend cuts or suspensions so far. And in fact, the mood music is very much uh, without anyone wishing to guarantee their dividends, has been very much that uh, boards would be minded to use their revenue reserves in order to preserve uh, current levels. That seems to be the mood music coming across. I think people recognise that it's one of the great strengths of the investment trust company structure, that you do have these revenue reserves, you do have this ability to uh, draw on those uh, in the case of a rainy day, um, and that seems to be where we are at the moment. Now, I think that works if we're talking about a three to six month, possibly even nine month interruption to, to dividend payments. But if that were to be extended, that becomes, I think, a more difficult uh, discussion for those, those investment companies to have. So it might be worth just reminding people uh, about what revenue reserves are. Uh, essentially, they are income that has come into the investment trust, but has not all been paid out as a dividend. So you're allowed, I think, to keep up to about 15% as revenue reserves. And then you can build that over, over a period of time. But in, in, in broad terms, what, what typically is the kind of range of revenue reserves that investment trusts have relative to the dividends that they might have to pay out? As, uh, it, it will vary, obviously. But as a rule of thumb, uh, most investment trust companies have about a year's worth of dividends stored up in revenue reserves. Um, some of it more, some of it less. But as a rule of thumb, a year is a, is a pretty good proxy. And you can do that for more than one year, presumably. I mean, you, can, you can always put aside some money every year. And if you're one of the more conservative ones, you will have something a bit more than a year. And if you're less conservative, you have something a bit less. But the presumption being, I guess, at the moment, that 
whatever happens between now and the end of their financial year, they're not going to lose, you know, 50% of their dividend income. They might lose 20% or, or 30%, that sort of thing. And that's the kind of rainy day buffer that you want to have. I think that's absolutely right. Um, so it's not that every single uh, operating company is is suspending their dividends at the moment. So obviously in the news this week, we've heard about Tesco's paying out a bomber dividend. And in fact, the Investment Association has made it quite clear that they hope that people will be minded to keep dividends going because actually that's very, very important for a lot of savers. A lot of people do actually rely on those dividends coming through, uh, as do investment trust companies as well. So it's not the case that all dividends will be suspended across the UK marketplace, though clearly there are some businesses and industries that will struggle to keep that going. So we'll see. I think as the weeks go by, it become clearer where we stand. But uh, I think as we talked about last week, this really is a, an opportunity for the investment trust company uh, industry, in my opinion, particularly those uh, popular UK equity income or global equity income mandates, that they can demonstrate that they can provide sustainable dividends at this point in the market cycle with this backdrop of these unusual uh, times, then I think uh, investors will respond to that. Um, and you could, you could really see these companies push forward and be even more highly regarded. And of course, for some investment companies also, there is a possibility, even if you've exhausted your revenue reserves, to pay some income uh, or income you pay out as from capital rather than from revenue reserves. Now, that's rather been frowned upon. But do you think, uh, are there cases where that's happened or will there be more cases where that happens, do you think? Yes, you're absolutely right. There was a, a, a without getting into the, the, the boring details, but there was a tax change a number of years ago, a change to legislation that meant that this became possible. Uh, a number of investment companies have taken up that opportunity. Uh, including things like a couple of the JP Morgan funds, uh, including JP Morgan Global Growth and Income. Uh, and we've seen one or two others do it as well. And this is the idea that they invest their portfolio as their manager sees fit, but they use the investment trust structure to effectively, as you say, convert capital into income, pay a proportion of the NAV back every quarter or semi-annually or however the dividend is structured uh, to form uh, an attractive dividend. So uh, has it worked? It has worked in a number of instances, and those funds have been re-rated uh, and they've been popular with retail investors. And again, let's see how this all plays out. But potentially those companies could be quite attractive, again, with the dividend uh, reliability or sustainability that they could potentially provide. Well, again, that's something else we can track over the next few weeks, and I, and I look forward to doing that. Uh, I think our final question before we bring this to a close, Simon, is just to talk about what's going on with discount control mechanisms and whether or not companies are issuing shares. I mean, I was quite surprised to see the scale of the amount of issuance that has been going on even through this market turmoil. Some investment trusts have been able to issue new shares. One of the questions that comes up all the time about discount control mechanisms is it's all very well to, uh, to say to the market where well, we're going to control the discount. But when something really dramatic happens, like uh, we've just seen, there is a sort of worry that a lot of boards are going to say, well, actually, not so sure. We said that, but we're not quite sure whether we really want to do that after all. And similarly, whether they would continue to issue shares when they're trading at a premium. So how, how, do we, how should we think about that at the moment? Uh, I mean, what we've seen is a little bit of a mixed picture. So those investment trust companies that have a zero discount policy, um, so things like capital gearing trust, personal assets, the experience over the last month or so, as it has been in, the, in both those funds uh, cases for a number of years, has been very good. They've issued shares and they've bought back shares in order to prevent that uh, share price discount volatility. Again, we've seen other large, well-known investment trust companies like Finsby Growth and Income. They've bought back shares within the last month. They've also issued shares in the last month. So in other words, they're trying to reduce that volatility for their investors, their shareholder base. And I think 
that feels right. I think one of the things that we're particularly interested in is that if, as we suspect, there will be this demand for those high yielding uh, investment trust companies, that it's very important that you manage your premium rating as much as you manage your discounts. It's all very well to use buybacks to ensure the discount doesn't go out too wide. But equally, if retail demand is seeing your uh, share price push up in advance of your NAV, in other words, you're trading on quite big premium ratings, then it's very important to issue shares into that to ensure that when investors come in, they're not overpaying for the shares because the experience has been that where people do pay 10% plus premiums for long-only equity mandates, so basically portfolios of stocks and shares, that as and when those, those vehicles get derated and they can, unfortunately, then it can be a bit of a, of a, of a bumpy ride. It can be a savage derating. So um, it's not just about managing discounts, it's about managing premiums as well. I think it is quite well understood across the industry, but I mean, it helps liquidity in the secondary market as well. So I think these are, these are all reasons why they should continue. Well, let's hope that they do um, in the months that come or the weeks that come. So that's been very helpful, as always, Simon, this week. Thank you for your time. It's only been a four-day week uh, in the markets, but it's been quite an eventful one, as we said at the beginning. I won't ask you to say what's going to happen next week or even next month this week. Um, I put you on the spot last month. I might come back to that every month rather than every week. <laughs> but um, I think it is fair to say, though, that when you have bear markets, and if this is, turns out to be a, a serious bear market related to the virus, it may not. You do tend to get these, these rallies coming back quite strongly at different points during the cycle. So we can't say for certain that the worst of the crisis is over. Uh, I don't think we can infer that from the way that the markets have moved. But obviously, we hope that things will continue to get clearer on the, on the, on the global news about the virus and that people can get a better picture of where we're heading. But it is fair to say, I think, that uh, we can't just say that it's all over now and we can't, uh, we've got nothing else to worry about as far as the market's concerned. No, I think that's absolutely right. I think people have got to be prepared for volatility in the marketplace uh, in the short and medium term. Uh, you know, it's been a good week. You know, we can see that by the, the way markets have reacted. Um, but it might not be the case, frankly, that we'll see the same again next week. So this is a fast moving situation and, and people should be very wary of that. Indeed. And so I hope they will uh, tune in again next week to hear what actually happens. Thanks again, Simon, for your time. Thank you. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening, and please keep safe in these difficult times.